This morning, we're going to go back into chapter 15 in the book of Luke and look at another one of Jesus' parables. And this is one of the best known, if not the best known parable in the Bible. We're going to start in verse 11 in Luke chapter 15, if you want to pull that up on an app or over in the sidebar, if you're watching on our live stream or just open up your Bible. Luke 15, starting in verse 11 today. This is the story that we often call the prodigal son. If you learned it growing up, you may have learned it that way, or you may have even the title in your Bible, The Prodigal Son. But as we're going to learn today, it's better understood as the parable or the story of the two sons. Maybe your Bible does say that in it for the title above this text. Peter Hanley, who passed away about a year and a half ago from our church, loved this story. If you knew Peter, you may have sat in a, in a Sunday school or in a Wednesday night class where he taught on this story, and he loved Dr. Tim Keller's understanding of the story. We're going to look a little more at some of those same perspectives today in our study of this passage, and he loved it because it was a story that was rich with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It was the core of what Jesus taught was summed up in this parable. Now, if you've been listening to this series on the parable, you understand that Jesus here is focusing our attention on this idea of rescue, this idea that he came to redeem us, to offer us rescue from our sin, from the brokenness and the destruction that we even see in our world right now all around us. With this COVID-19 crisis, as people are grappling with it, we're all struggling with sin and how it affects the world around us, how it affects our hearts and how we feel within us. And we struggle with the uncertainty, the stress, the frustration and the loss that we see all around us, the things that we see around us, they fill us up with these emotions. They well up in us. They make us uh, run wild sometimes with thoughts, maybe. Maybe not wild, but we, we struggle with these thoughts. And as our intellects are affected, our lives, our emotion, our relationship, they're all affected by sin. Maybe in your world, you're being affected by this crisis. Maybe things around you are being affected reduced. There's struggle. There's loss. For some of us right now, we may have lost money or we may have lost this feeling of safety. We may have even lost a job. There's nothing good and there's nothing easy about what we're going through. And it can make us feel completely out of control. Perhaps the most difficult thing are the emotions that do well up inside of us. Everything we thought that would keep us safe, that would provide for us, they may be gone, they may be reduced, they may be just apart from us right now, and we struggle in those times. We don't know what to do because we want control. We want comfort, we want peace, we want assurance. And we're dealing with the fact that some of the things that we thought would bring those things to us, peace, assurance, comfort, they're gone right now. Now, if that's you or if it's someone you know, if it's someone you love, you understand what I'm talking about today. And so as we enter into this story, we're going to find two sons who are struggling to reconcile their world, wanting to make it what they expect it to be, wanting it to make them feel safe, to feel comfortable. And as Jesus is telling the story, we have to remember the setting he's in. He's still where he was. He's telling the story as he's talked about the lost sheep and the lost coin, as if you looked the last few weeks with us. He's still sitting there with all these folks who were not the typical people who looked for religious instruction, the sinners and the outcasts. He's still talking with them. 
in Luke chapter 15. And yet the good religious folks, the Pharisees and the teachers, they are there as well. And they've been scoffing at Jesus. Why are you talking to these people? Why are you teaching these people? Why are you eating with these people? Because in that culture, to have that kind of relationship was so different, was so unusual. And every parable Jesus is telling here in Luke 15 seems to be targeting those religious leaders. First, he talks about a shepherd, one who couldn't enter into the temple. Then he takes it up a notch and he talks about a woman, and she's the hero of this story, someone who wouldn't even have much place or notoriety in that culture. But Jesus today is going to take it farther still, and he's going to talk about something even more scandalous. He's going to go right at the religious leaders, as we're going to see. He's going to go after them, and he's going to talk about God's love for two sons, because the father in the story, the loving parent, and we know it's Mother's Day, and we love our moms, and in this story, of course, God's being described as our Heavenly Father. The Father in the story surely represents Him. And yet, just as there are two groups in the story, there are two sons. There are those who are the outcasts and those who are the, the rejected ones and the ones who are not living according to those Old Testament laws, uh, certainly far away from obedience in many ways. Many of them, at least, were not nearly obedient to God's Word. And yet, there were the good religious types, as we will see in this story, illustrated by the older son, the older brother in the story, with the younger brother and the older brother, the younger son, the older son. And they're kind of archetypes, they're kind of examples of the two groups Jesus has before him as he teaches. So as we enter into the scriptures this day, I want to draw you into the story, into that setting, that tension. These two groups who would never be together, yet in Jesus we find them both there listening as he teaches. So Luke chapter 15, we're going to start here in verse 11 today. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days after, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the, that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to, his, to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. 
As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who had devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you were always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's holy word. Now, as we said in these past few weeks, we've talked about these parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep. And in these parables, Jesus has made the hero the wrong kind of people. And here in the story, we have two groups of people as the religious leaders would see him, the wrong kind of people, the tax collectors and those who were not living moral lives in the right kind of people, the people like them that followed all the rules that were upright and good. And yet here we have the tax collectors and the sinners and the good religious people all hearing this story from Jesus. So what do we make of this? The religious people, they knew they were obeying the laws. In fact, they were obeying laws that went far beyond God's word. They had added hundreds of them over the years. And the sinners, not so many rules being obeyed, so to speak. Yet the one group that is attracted to Jesus the most readily, it's not the religious people. It's those who are morally out of line with God's Old Testament. And the other group is shocked, even angered, that Jesus is welcoming in these tax collectors and sinners. They're so angry. Yet you look at Jesus' ministry. You look at even his disciples. Simon the Zealot, one of his disciples. Levi, the tax collector, who we know as Matthew. But beyond that, the Samaritan woman. Zacchaeus. All these people, Jesus. He goes up connects with them. He welcomes them. He makes them part of his tribe, so to speak. It's important for us to notice this as we go into this study. Jesus is telling this parable to show us more of God's heart. These parables are everyday stories that reveal God's heart, God's kingdom, that spiritual redemption that he is bringing, the grace, the love, and the mercy that Jesus is going to offer at the cross to rescue and to redeem us from the destruction that sin creates. And yet we see those people who should be getting all of this, the religious people, the scholars of God's covenant, of God's promises about his Messiah given through all the prophets. And yet they're angry with God's very son teaching before them. They're not rushing to Jesus's feet at all. Like the elder brother in the story, they're not interested in any of this. And yet the broken people, the sinful people, the ones who have morally and are morally out of line with God's word, they flock to Jesus, many of them. What does this mean about the gospel? What is this teaching us about God's heart? 
It teaches us that God is not immoral and the gospel is not immoral. It's not cheap grace, as we're going to see. But yet, what the gospel, what the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, what it's teaching us is far more than our simple human morality. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 31. Truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. That's what Jesus tells the religious leaders, the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes are going into God's kingdom before the scholars of the Old Testament. You can't imagine how angry they must have been. And yet the gospel, it is moral. It is righteous. And God's word is good. So what is Jesus saying? Well, we find the truth of this in this parable about two sons and the two types of people. Something powerful about the gospel, something deeper about the gospel is revealed here. And Jesus is telling us the gospel is for you. But if you are for the gospel, your heart has to align with God's heart. We started talking a little bit about that last week. Jesus wants them to know about who is getting into the kingdom of heaven and what kind of heart attitude those people have. So who are these two groups? Who are these two people with these two perspectives? They have two different grids. Dr. Tim Keller, who I mentioned earlier, he describes them as having two different worldviews or two different grids. There's a moralistic grid or a moral worldview. And there's one that's a little more relativist or wild and free, we might say. Now, the moral group would say, we find God by obeying the law and God will forgive us. In fact, God actually likes us a little more if we keep all the rules. And if you want God to save you, if you want God to welcome you into his kingdom, you better live up to the standards, or at least you better get really, really close. And in fact, if you try really hard to be good, you're going to be loved by God a little bit more. And yet the relativistic group, the, the wild and free group, they would say something very different. They would say, we find salvation, we find God if he's out there, by following our truest hearts and what we feel deep down inside of us. In fact, we know that God will accept us and he's going to welcome us in if we just search for him with our whole hearts. No matter what we say or what we do, a true God who really is loving, he's going to welcome us in. If he's out there, he's going to accept us because we sought him with our whole selves. And notice, of course, each group views the other one unfavorably. They don't like each other at all. And each group believes that one of them is in with God and the other one is out with God. Yet, as we really understand the story, we find that each group, they can make the argument that the other group is out and they're in. In fact, if you would take this story the way you may have learned as you were little and just stop the story at, say, verse 25, we would see that either group could argue that they were right and that the other group was wrong. Now, why would I say that? Verse 25, where we often stop the story in our minds, where the father runs out and wraps his arms around that younger son, the younger brother, the one we call the prodigal son. In that story, either group could argue they were right, if that's where it ended. First of all, let's think about the backstory here. The younger son. He asks his father for his inheritance. 
And to do that was so disrespectful. He was basically saying to his father, I don't care if you're alive or dead. Give me the money I would get when you die and let me go on and have what I want, which is all the money and all the stuff. And I'm going to get on with my life. And notice the father, he complies. And yet he doesn't just give all the riches and all the rewards and all the opportunity to the younger son. If you look in the passage here, he gives it to both of them. He gives them their inheritance. The father lavishly gives all of it to each of the sons. They have it. Now, the, the younger son is still there with the older son, the, or the older son is still there with the father, rather, and the younger son, he goes off and he ruins all of it. Look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Continuing into verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Now, I heard Dave Ramsey say recently in regards to the COVID-19 crisis, we are all learning in our lives where we have pain points and where we have made mistakes in our planning. Maybe we don't have any money. Maybe we aren't prepared for this. As my grandfather used to say, be prepared or be perturbed. And maybe right now you feel pretty perturbed. You're upset. You're confused. You're stressed out. When disaster strikes, when difficulty comes, whether it's on a macro level, on a global level like we're dealing with right now, or whether it's on that micro, that personal level, because of something we've done or something we've left undone, as the old prayer says, we may be angry. We may be struggling. That's certainly what happened to the younger son. He made every mistake and had nothing. He was eating the husks and the garbage given to the pigs, those unclean animals. Again, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees must have heard this and just grimaced at the thought of him serving those unclean animals. And he comes to his senses and comes back. And his father runs out and loves him. Even before he can confess his sin, he's loved and his father kisses him and wraps his arms around him. Remember, God is the Heavenly Father, just loving and welcoming this sinner back home, like that shepherd that goes out and finds the lost sheep from the 99, or the woman who searches until she finds that lost coin. If the story stops there, then perhaps the wild and free crowd can see, see, God remembers who we are. He loves us. It doesn't matter what we say or what we do. It's almost a universalist way of looking at things. We're all welcomed. In the end, God's going to love us all. If the story stopped there, they can make that argument. So you religious, you legalistic people, you don't know what you're talking about. And in the same way, the other side of the coin, the moralistic grid, the moralistic group of people that the Pharisees and the teachers represented, they would argue the other way. You know, you can make the worst sin out of your life, but if you finally figure it out that you have to live right before God and you get it all together, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, even though sin's torn your life apart, and you go back to God, he's going to welcome you in, he's going to love you. But because you repented, because you have walked the right way, God is going to see that change in your heart, and he's going to welcome you into his kingdom. But that's not where the story ends. That's not where the story ends at all. You see, the relativist grid misses out on the point that the younger son, the younger brother, certainly did suffer. Sin brings death and destruction. Our choices can rob us of so much in our lives, and not just us, 
but they hurt the people that we love around us. Sin does destroy, and Jesus here is not exonerating anybody from sin. He's not saying that sin isn't sin. He's not saying that. And yet Jesus isn't saying to the older crowd that suddenly everyone got it together. Suddenly everybody who comes to God, they're just a little more together, a little more spiritual, a little more moral and righteous than the other people around them. It's not what God's Word teaches at all. You see, neither group is close to the heart of God. What they believe about Him and about the kingdom that He's offering, the one Jesus is talking about, they're not even close in what they understand about themselves, let alone one another. They don't get it. Jesus is showing both groups here with this parable that they miss the heart of God. They don't understand the gospel, the good news, the free grace that they're being offered. Neither group comes, not the son who runs off and squanders his wealth, nor the older son who's off in the field. In verse 20, we see that the father is actually the one who goes to the younger son and and loves him, as we said, before he's even there. But as we'll see later on, he goes to the older son as well. Look at verse 28 and see that in the passage. The father goes to both of them. He invites the older brother into the party. In fact, he pleads with them. He begs the older brother, come into the party. You see the power of the gospel put into life here in this passage. None of us are perfect. None of us are moral. Not the older brother, certainly not the younger brother. The gospel here is telling both groups, you cannot say to the other, you're an in in person and I'm an out person. No, the gospel says that we're all out. We're all outside of God's love and none of us, none of us see God's heart, not even one of us. And yet God comes to find us. He's that good shepherd that seeks us out. He's the one that lights a lamp in the darkness as the woman did searching for her lost coin. And here, he's the father that goes to both sons when they are far away from his heart and invites them in. You see, the moral people aren't in. In the free spirits, they're not in. In the kingdom that Jesus has come to reveal, the humble are in. In the proud, well, they're the ones who are on the outs. Why? Because both sons, in reality, are running from God. You see, that's the nature of sin. Someone asks me to define sin, and I would define sin this way. Sin is our running away from God in the depths of our heart, in the wholeness of our being our rebellion, our running away from God. But we all run in different ways. Luke 15 is honestly about how we all run from God. And yet when God comes near, when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that second part of the Trinity comes near, he's revealing to everyone that we're all sinners. We're all fleeing from God and from submitting our hearts and our lives to him. How we run is based on our grid, on our perspective, how we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we see the other people. That's what we're learning in this passage. Running from God, saying, I don't need you, I can do it myself. That's certainly what the younger brother said. 
until he ran off and the famine came and he squandered everything. God let him sin. God gave him all of the freedom he had. And at the end, it hurt him. And he understood that. But he said, God, get away. He said, Dad, get away. I don't, I don't need you. In fact, I kind of wish you weren't even around. The younger brother, their younger brother figured it out. But yet, this passage is not just about that prodigal. The older brother here in the story, he's running too. He, he wants it all his way. In fact, he expects it all to go his way. Look at verse 29, where the father has come to him. And in his real heart, out slip the words of truth. Look what he says. He says, I've done all these things you've asked of me. I've never disobeyed your orders. I've actually been like a slave for you. And you've never given me a party. You've never given me anything good. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. Both brothers, both groups, the whole spectrum, as we said, gathered to hear Jesus, they all come into focus here. And somewhere in that group, you and I fit as well. We're all sinners. We all run from God. We want safety. We want security. We demand this idea of control. And yet, in our world, in times like this, we find that it's all really an illusion. We don't have control. None of us do. We're often looking at God as if he owes us something and we want God, but often I think in the depths of our heart, if we're honest, we want what God offers us, safety, security. In fact, we think if we do things just right, that maybe God kind of owes us one, that he's going to just let us have all the good stuff. That's why the older brother's sticking around. He wants all the good stuff. He thinks if he's good enough, his father's going to give him even more of it. And the younger son, he thought he could just take it all and, and do it all his way. But both of them, they don't really want the father. They just want what he provides. That's why this is the parable of the two sons. And Jesus here is teaching both groups. It's not about whether you've got it together or, or whether you think you've got it together because none of us have it together. And only when God's love reaches out and touches us are those he calls humbled. Just as the younger son breaks down and says, I, I'm not worthy to even be called your son. And yet look at the love of the father that he lavishes on the son. He wraps the robe around him, puts his ring on his finger, says, you're part of my family. You're part of my kingdom. That ring represented his family name, his birthright, all that he had. He says, it doesn't matter what you've squandered because you understand, because you've humbled yourself, you're still welcome. And notice he goes to the older son that represents those Pharisees, those teaching elders, those people that think they have it all together in their hearts. Maybe in some ways that could be some of us. And he says, I'm not here just to give you what you want. In fact, I'm here to give you what you need. Now you may be thinking to yourself, that's not me. I'm not part of that older brother crowd who wouldn't come to the party if the shepherd brought in the, the one sheep and as the angels rejoice in heaven when when one comes back into the, the family of God as the coin, the lost coin is found, that's not, I'm not like that at all. That's not me. Maybe you're thinking that. Have you ever prayed, especially when things are hard, maybe in times like this, God, you know, I've always tried to, God, I've never asked you for, God, you know, I try so hard to, You see, 
I think we've all been the older brother. I remember when I look at this story and talk about it, I remember Peter Hanley saying to me, you know why I love this story? Because I was the older brother. And friends, I have certainly been the older brother. In fact, just when I think I'm not the older brother, something happens to remind me that I'm the older brother, and yet God comes to me, and he loves me, and he wraps his arms around me with that irresistible grace. And when I am angry, and when I think God owes me something, when I think that other people, they're worse off than I am, and I'm a little more holy than they are, when I have all those traits of the older brother, God reminds me that nothing I've ever done has been worth anything outside of his love and his power and his goodness in my life guiding me and shaping me and redeeming me and bringing me from death to life as this passage talks about over and over again the one who is dead finds hope and is alive that's why the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven because they've humbled themselves and they've realized how dead they were in their sin that's what jesus is trying to teach all of us that deep down we all need to recognize there are times when we as the good church folks, are that older brother. Jesus alone is the true older brother. He's the one that keeps all the rules and expects nothing. In fact, he gives up everything to come to love us and to redeem us. The question today, friends, for all of us, will we recognize which brother we are? And sometimes, maybe at a different point in our lives, we're the younger brother, and sometimes we might be the older brother, but are we willing to repent? And when the Father runs to us and tells us how much He loves us and how everything we have can, everything He has can be ours. See, He tells that to both of the sons. Everything I have is yours. It doesn't matter. You're welcome. We're going to celebrate because you were lost. But now that you see, now that you surrender, now that you rest in my arms, you are found. That's the question for us today. Which brother are we? And will we realize that no matter where we are running from God, that he's there running towards us to welcome us in, to love us, and to make us his very own? That's the question we must answer today, friends. We must remember that God loves us, not because of what we've done or because of what we've not done. He doesn't hate us, but because he has mercy, because he uniquely created us because he has chosen us and calls us. We too can be restored to right standing in the family of God. If that's you as you pray today, I want to invite you just to confess that before God, just to invite him into your heart. And if you've been running from him, even if he's already your, your savior, if he hasn't really been your Lord because you've been running from him and saying, you know what, God, I've got this. I don't need you. Just take a moment as we pray to, today to close and repent of that as well. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we don't know which brother we may be at some time. Sometimes we're running from you to our own stuff. Sometimes we're running so hard on the treadmill of obedience, thinking that somehow that makes us more righteous and more worthy and that you owe us something, that we have some kind of leverage over you. And God, in both of those instances, you say, that's not grace. That's not the gospel. We need a new a grid, a grid that's different, a perspective that's different, that we're humble that we understand that when we come to you and realize that all we have are filthy rags, it's nothing of any value, but yet you love us and that you're guiding us and that, God, I think even in this time, you're using this crisis to remind us that all the stuff we think that you owe us, 
It's never going to make us happy. God, would we in our hearts recognize that our wholeness, our hope, our fulfillment doesn't come from what you provide. It comes from you. So Lord, if there's anyone today that has not ultimately surrendered their lives to you, that they've never made you their savior, that they would just, if you're wrapping your arms around them, if you're holding on to them, if you've run out to kiss them before they've even confessed it, that grace is right there around them, that they would just say, God, I need you. I'm a sinner. I can't do this on my own. And Lord, if there's anyone today who is saying, I've been running so hard and trying to prove myself to God and I'm so angry and I'm so unhappy like that older brother that they would understand that in your kingdom there's grace, there's rest, there's peace. Your burden is light. You've come to tell us that we don't earn our grace and in fact we can't earn any of it. We can just accept it. God, that we would get off that treadmill of performance and just rest in your mercy this day. God, that we would confess that now in this time. And Lord, as we look at one another, that we would see each other as worthy of your love, unlike those in the story today, that we would see all of us as being, whether we're the younger brother or the older brother, we're all those people that are running from God that need to just fall down when you run out to us and say, thank you for loving me. God, that's our prayer. Use us, we pray, to share your grace and mercy and love. In Jesus' name, amen.